Old Testament this morning, back to Leviticus chapter 25. Uh, If this is your first time with us, we don't normally do messages like this uh, in terms of delivery and style and subject, but we've been going through the book of Ephesians and we finished that up two weeks ago and we looked at uh, the warrior's question last week and the question of even if we're involved in church, do we truly love the Lord? So we're going to take a look this morning at what we believe that the Lord is doing, what God is doing in what we all experience as the recession. Has anybody heard a rumor that there's a recession or economic issues? Anybody at all? Okay, a couple. And by the way, let me just go ahead and confess something to you up front, just in case the Liberty Police show up. I got a a radio installed in my car. I've had that car for probably over two and a half years, and I've never had a radio that's worked in it at all. That just shows, I mean, I just, I plug in the iPod, man, or either either talk to myself or, you know, and so I finally got it installed and they found a CD that had been apparently by the previous user, the previous user, I don't, owner, I don't know how bright the person was because they had missed the CD tray that takes the CD in to play the music, but they had put it over the top and it had fallen into the casing behind the CD player itself. And so I said, this CD has been in here for probably a long time. Let me see what's on it. Now, this is the first time I had this this stereo. So I put it in. I'm in the parking lot of Liberty University in the library. And the volume was, let's say, really loud. You know what I'm talking about? Heard that before? And this had, it was, it was, uh, it was hardcore. Some of y'all might know what this is. Some of y'all are like, what is that? Hardcore gangster rap. Blasting! I had the windows down and I could not find how to turn it down. And the lyrics were not Amazing Grace. Are you with me? And so they had students coming out like, this is going to be great. You know, I told our, our Hardy's group, you know, the, the Liberty Police come around like, you are not a pastor. Put your hands on the car. So that was a little bit of uh, embarrassment. And, you know, sometimes just a little parallel. Sometimes we have things in our life that you may be ashamed of. This doesn't really connect with Leviticus 25 specifically, but it's the overarching theme of this message and that the gospel is the power of God and salvation. Romans chapter one, verse 16. And Therefore, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Amen? So the fact that we have a gospel and we have a God who's in control, that's the only reason why we can talk about what God is doing, right? We're not talking about what God is managing or what God is doing as far as damage control in the recession. And whether it gets worse or whether it gets better is up to people out of my control. But if God is sovereign... And we mean by God being sovereign, he is in control. That means that nothing happens that he does not either permit or cause. Then God has a purpose in everything, right? You ever been around a random person? Right? They just say or do something and and you say, what, what, where did that come from? God is not random. There's nothing random within the plan of God. So you and I are here. We remember back in 2008 when the bottom fell out, the housing bubble it burst, massive layoffs, and if you didn't get laid off, your hours largely got laid off. Some of you. Some of you had a thing called a 401k, 401b, 401 whatever it is, and you have your 501s, you had your retirement, and some of you saw that cut, whatever you had in there, drastically. And I remember when I was, uh, I was working a job and everybody there on the job, it was, it was just like freak out time, like freak out time. Like our retirement just got blasted. It went from being whatever size it was to being a midget. And then our hours are getting cut. The, the, the company's talking about laying off. I'm, what, what in the world is happening? And people today are still very concerned, very nervous about the economy. So what are we as Christians to understand about what God is doing? You know, if we look back in the Bible, all the way back to the beginning, when Adam and Eve fell and they got kicked out of the Garden of Eden, the flood came, right? Noah's flood, catastrophe, everybody's dead except for Noah and his family. They start all over, right? And God tells them something, he says, basically, going back to Genesis 1, I want you to be fruitful and multiply and go throughout all the earth, right? 
Like, I want you guys to go settle this planet for the glory of God. Well, they didn't do that. There was a guy named, anybody remember a guy named Nimrod? Okay. Nimrod was the guy who was basically, we don't have time to get into all the Nimrodology this morning, not like most of you would care, which by the way, I did bring nerds this morning, you're going to be able to eat your heart out. I actually brought books that I'm going to recommend to you to read if you want to. Normal people, you've already zoned out, I'll come back just in a moment. If you're a nerd, I have a collection of books, this is a confession, I love to read about economics. We're not going to get into economic theory. We're going to speak about God's Word, how it applies to us. But we have The Mystery of Capital by Hernando de Soto. We have Love and Economics by Jennifer Roback Morse. Adam Smith and the Wealth of Nations. Great book. Uh, F.A. Hayek, The Road to Serfdom. Which if you don't know what socialism is, or if you're not sure if it's good or bad, take a look at this. And you also have a over 500 page monster for you uber nerds out there who have... Time and probably no relationships. If you want to work through this, it's an amazing read. And um, people say, now, Jeff, you, you know, you're, you're still single. And I'm, why are you still single? I'm like, bro, if the majority of calls on your voicemail are from the library, hey, we got you another book in, you know, that's probably a good, you know, evidence of where my love life is. So, Basic Economics by Thomas Sowell, amazing book. Um, we're not going to get into those this morning, but if you'd like to come and, and write it down and research and, and really understand what's going on, because the reason why I bring those books here is because we have, we have people in here, and some of you guys, you listen to talk radio. We have any talk radio fans? All right. Okay. Okay. And and some people, they don't listen to the talk radio because they talk to people who listen to talk radio. All right. So we get, we got some, some people that are like always learning, you know, hearing uh, the talking heads about economic theory. They don't actually read to find out for themselves. And then, you know, so we've got this big confusion of, of what to think about these things. So if you actually want to get down and read some good stuff, you can, you can read this. But kind of the first guy to put together a, 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 a bureaucratic type of system was Nimrod. And instead of obeying God to go out and settle the world, you can read about this in the book of Genesis, he caused all the people to come together, and somebody tell me what Nimrod led the people to build. Somebody tell me. That's right, the Tower of Babel, which it literally means babblings. It means the Tower of Confusion. So here's the thing, all right, you're like the generation after everybody got killed except for Noah and his family. Wouldn't that kind of be fresh in your minds, right? Like some of you who are fans of a certain team, and you remember your, your team last year just got totally blown out of the water. It still hurts, doesn't it? And I'm not going to make a joke about any Virginia teams at this point as well as that could be made. But going back to, because some of you guys totally wouldn't come back. You're like, he just made fun of my team. You know, I love Jesus, but, you know, Jesus is going to become and and rapture only the, uh, which by the way, good job on making it past the end of the world. All right. Amen. Yeah. We, We missed it somehow, man. You know, I. It was kind of funny this morning. Uh, the Sunday school class was a little little late getting there. It was like a few minutes after 10. I'm like, I don't know. I saw Fred Tudor this morning, so maybe we got left. And in any way, we'll just dress the same. Which, by the way, we're trying to stop that. If y'all have noticed, when we dress the same, it is not on purpose. Amen? All right? We just want to put the right impression out there. So, you, you know, you, you, you go back to this guy named Nimrod. And what he was, he was doing. Y'all have gotten me off track this morning. I got to stay. I got to stay tracking. What he did is he built this tower called Babel with all the people. Now the question is, why would the people, the generation after the, the, the devastation of the whole planet, why would they come together and be like, what do you want to do? Let's build a tower. Seriously? Like a tower? Why would you want to build a tower? Basically two theories. Some scholars believe this was an ancient ziggurat. You can go look that up on Google if you want today and nerd yourself out with ancient research. And the purpose of a ziggurat was to have what they thought communion with the gods. Little g, plural. Which the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, that these idols, these false gods that pagans worship, are actually, that's a mask for a demonic spirit behind it. And the other theory, I think, is, is and, and they both coalesce, they kind of fit together, is comes from Josephus who wrote the history of the Jews. And he said 
this, and I'm quoting from Josephus, here is the purpose for why the human race chose to disobey God and build a big tower. So that he would build a tower too high for the waters to be able to reach. And that he would avenge himself, speaking of Nimrod, on God for destroying their forefathers. So basically what Nimrod was trying to do here in building this tower, number one, it was a a site of pagan worship, but he also told the people, basically, guys, if God chooses to send another flood, we're going to show God what's up. Like if God sends a flood to cover the whole world, well, we'll be like, God, go ahead and flood us out. We'll build a tower. And in the Hebrew it says, well, we're going to build a tower that descends or ascends into the heavens. So in other words, you can send the flood, God, but we're going to be so high you can't even touch us. And then history records, as Alexander Hislop in his book, The Two Babylons, that what actually happened is that Shem, one of Noah's sons, we had Shem from what we think, uh, like Semite, uh, Semitic peoples and Arabs and, and Jews uh, came from. And then you have Ham, which uh, from what we understood settled in Africa. And that's uh, where they, and then also you have um, the elder son who settled in Northern Europe. They think that's where European peoples came from. But what happened, they said, is Shem went back. This is, this is not in the Bible. This is history that, that connects with it. Shem actually found Nimrod and killed him. Kind of hardcore, isn't it? actually sent his body into the, the, the known parts of the world there as if to say, don't, this, for those of you who enjoy Old Testament violence and for those of you who have problems with the ethical issues, we can explain that. But what he did is basically said, no one is going to try to institute a pagan form of government and lead people into spiritual slavery because that's exactly what Nimrod did. So even back at the beginning, you see this, this plan of people to try to, to, try to, to, to get stuff, and by getting stuff, thereby be secure, and thereby be separate from dependence upon God. Right? And that's what happens. You know, some of you who are parents remember back when, um, I don't know if this ever happened, like you, you can imagine if your kid has a tree house, and you tell the child, here's what I want you to do. I'm not telling you this because I hate you or because I'm trying to be a, an oppressive parent, but I'm telling you, go, go do this, whatever task. And what the child does, the child goes outside and climbs up into the treehouse and gets up into the treehouse, even if it's one of those short little treehouses, right? And they get up a little bit above their parent and they say, I'm in the treehouse, mom or dad, I don't have to listen to you. And you as a parent... How many, it would probably, hopefully 100%, except for those of you who have perfect children and you also have a problem with lying. It would probably be like 100% at the time that your kid in your life just like defied you. That little sin nature just kind of like, it bubbled out and it came in terms of defiance towards you. And that's the way the human race was then. And do you think really much has changed at all? My uncle and aunt, they have a bird. It's a macaw bird. I'm not a bird expert. But they say that if you have a macaw, you've got to have the perch lower than your eye level. Because if this is really, this is weird. I I don't understand birds. If you have the macaw and it sits above you, it will not respond to your commands. It thinks that it is the dominant one in the pack. And what you see throughout the Scripture is that the age-old quest of human beings to gain security apart from God is not really them trying to gain security, but they're trying to say, you know what, Lord, if I can get this, this amount of income or this amount of retirement or whatever it is, I don't have to rely upon God anymore. So I want you to ask yourself the question this morning, when everything hit the fan, and as it is wrapped around the fan, and every time you turn on the TV, it just whoa-pow, whoa-pow, whoa-pow. And you experience that sense of nervousness is when you experience economic anxiety, is that actually shattering your hope in the viability of money to be a God, or is it shaking your trust in God Himself? Because we've got people all over the world, right? And the trust is in money. 
It says in Psalms chapter 2, verse 1, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and let us cast away their cords from us. So that's the way, like, before the Lord saved us, if you've been saved here this morning, that's the way that we viewed the gospel, wasn't it? Like, if I get saved, I'm not, I'm not going to be able to have any more fun. I'm not going to be able to do anything worthy of, you know, it's just going to be like lame. You know, I'm going to go to, go to church and, you know, sit on a boring pew and listen to boring sermons and boring music and, and never be able to have anything good in life. But what we see when we get saved, it's not just the going to church thing. It's the fact that since God cannot be moved, I'm going to drill my life deep into his character. And because God is is sufficient. The great thing is that I don't have to ultimately have my source of security in in money. Um, those of you who've seen the movie Avatar, there's a part to where Jake Soley is is there on his camera recording his vlog, his his thoughts, and he said they're not going to give up their home. They're not going to make a deal for what. A light beer and blue jeans. There's nothing. Listen to this phrase. He says, "There's nothing that we have that they." want. And if we really broke it down, and if we could like fast forward into like late retirement period, I think a lot of us, if we could look back upon our lives, say, you know what, I live my life to gain all, amass all of this wealth that I'm never going to be able to use. But if you, and we're, we're going to talk about this in a little bit, if you do, if God has given you the gift of finances and you've been able to make money, use it for the glory of God. Amen, church? Thanks, man. <clears throat> so in Leviticus chapter 25, we're going to break this down um, section by section. You've got it in your notes there on the back of your bulletin. How to honor God in any economy. This is, this is old school. This is Old Testament. The way the Lord said, guys, here's the guidelines I want you to operate when you um, relate to one another. Number one would be in verses 1 through 12, their proper rest. You see the phrase in verse 4. Uh, but in the seventh year, there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. And he explains, don't work your fields on that seventh year. In other words, let it rest. And the Day of Atonement would be every, every 50 years, there would be this thing called the Year of Jubilee. And it's kind of cool because if you were in debt, your debt was forgiven. Wouldn't that be kind of neat? But it was supposed to be done in equality, not like, you know, some cheapskates would late to like year 49 and take out a 5.2 million loan. Like, ah, year Jubilee! Don't have to pay it back. It wasn't based upon that at all. It was based upon mutual love and caring for one another. Um, Proverbs chapter, if you want to write this down, this is a great passage um, for those uh, of you who work, which a lot of young guys today, let me just go ahead and say this, they, they work a part-time job and uh, think that they're doing the world a favor. I think that I've learned much from older men who have worked and worked and worked. So if you're here and you have worked, praise God for that. Amen? It's a good thing to work. Make, it builds character. And young guys, that doesn't include um, Halo. Proverbs chapter 23, verses 4 and 5. If you are a worker, there can be the tendency to become what we know as... Have you ever heard of a workaholic, right? Okay, a workaholic. Proverbs chapter 23, verses 4 and 5 says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. It means to work until you're absolutely done over. To uh, be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, speaking of money... It is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. You know what Satan tells a lot of guys? It's like, oh, don't, you, you, you gotta make money. You gotta work 24 7. Because you've got that one day a week, right? You got that one day a week, and if you don't work, you'll, you'll not get any money. And even more so, if you go to church, you probably lose money. Can I get a witness? Right? The guy gets up there, the crazy dude, and they, they pass around a plate. You actually lose money if you go to church, so, so, so don't do that. Not only don't go to church to where you lose money, go out and work all the time, all the time to gain and amass wealth. But God says one of the ways that you can honor me is take a Sabbath, take a time to rest and honor me. 
Number two, in verses 13 through 34, we see the idea of the fear of God and love for people in business deals. In verse 13, it says, In this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. In the, in the Israelite covenant, in the Old Testament system, there was that aspect of the debts being forgiven because they had received the grace from the Lord. And verse 14 and uh, 17, notice at the end of, phrase, of verse 14, you see, you shall not wrong one another. Go to verse 17. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall what? Fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Ponzi schemes, crooked business deals, ripping people off. Just because you can doesn't mean that you should. Throughout the Old Testament, you see the theme to where God is saying, take care of people. Doesn't mean that you can't make money, doesn't mean you can't make a profit, but when you do your business, try to do it in a God-honoring, God-glorifying way. Verses 35 through 38, you see a concept also, it's active care for the poor. Notice verse 35, how to honor God. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Doesn't mean that you have to take him into your home, although wouldn't that be awesome to be able to have the opportunity to do that for the glory of God? In other words, he's not going to be able to, he's not going to be cast off of his land. He's not going to starve. He's not going to die. To take care of the poor. You know, there's a, there's a big difference between making a profit and using people. You say, Jeff, tell me where the line is drawn. Your conscience knows the difference, right? You ever been in that situation where you felt like you were totally getting ripped off? Like you're like, man, I need, I need, I don't know if we need to have like double contracts on this or we need to prick our hands and, and do it in blood, but, but there's some shadiness going on here. God is saying in any economy, look, the way that you honor me is you actively care for the poor. Because notice in verse number uh, 38, go with me to verse number 38. It says, um, I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. So God's saying the, the, the foundation which you base your actions in business upon is the fact that I have brought you out of slavery. I have redeemed you. I have bought you back from the slave market and I've given you freedom. Therefore, in your business dealings, do the same means that if God has given you the ability to do business, use your business as a way to bring glory to God by having mercy instead of judgment. You say, now Jeff, what if, what if, what if I'm in, in a deal and something goes south? There's nothing, there's nothing in the Bible that says that you can't get what's rightfully yours. But the question is for all of us, I want us to think about this deeply, if we truly got what was rightfully ours, what would all of us get? Think about it. We would all be in hell. Every single last one. You know the only reason why any of us are here right now is because it's the mercy of God holding us up. Jonathan Edwards gave this really freaky picture when he was preaching his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He said, some of you are like a spider held out on a thin thread and the flames are licking up and if a flame were to just singe the thread you would fall into hell they said when he was giving that sermon people were like holding on to the rafters because the power of god came so let's just not you know let's like last week are y'all okay from last week okay i think we have less people here i I figured maybe that probably i don't know check the office like have membership reports like i don't want to be a member there anymore but some of you guys braved it back and you know you came back so um if you if you missed it then you can check it out online or, or whatever you want to do. But, but you, you, you think about what all of us would receive if it were not for the grace and the mercy of God. You see now, Jeff, you're, 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 aha, fallacy of equivocation. You're associating salvation, a spiritual issue, with money, which is a financial issue. Okay, remember Jesus says that where your treasure is, there your what? Your heart will be also. So... All of us who work a job, we have people who work for us or we work for people. Think about it in this context. 
that if Jesus said that the way that we spend and use our money is representative of our heart, then how we give and how we extend mercy to those, check it out, who don't even deserve it, reflects, please hear me, how well we understand the concept of grace. Because if we have received grace, then we give grace. Once again, it's not saying that we allow people to take opportunity or take advantage of the church or someone else. But it simply means that we every action that we take in the Old Testament and the New Testament is based upon the fact that I have received the great mercy of God. Number four, if you to honor God in any economy, you should have active care for indentured servants, a.k.a. employees. Verses 39 through 46. He says um, in verse number uh, 46, um, you shall, the last phrase, you shall not rule over one another ruthlessly. In other words, there should be by an employer a love for his employees. Now, some of you who have people work for you, you've experienced human depravity, right? You've experienced like I've got, you know, some people, they, they very few, they do what I ask them to do. And some people, you got to stay on the whole time. It's like a full-time job just trying to get them to do their job. And it makes me want to go into work and make a postal worker look like a worker from Salvation Army. Rawr! You know, you just get so frustrated working with people. I would encourage you that, that, that whatever job that you, that you work in, look at people the way that Christ looks at them. Very quiet. See, this is not the way that we operate in America most of the time, business-wise. Now, I'm not speaking of the government imposing this. I'm speaking of a heartfelt gratitude for the Lord that manifests itself by a changed life and treating people differently. Number five, the active goal of helping people versus using people. Verse 53, again, you see the phrase. Uh, Go with me. He shall not rule ruthlessly over him in your sight. If you are a literal slave driver to the people that you work for, we're not talking about getting things done. We're not talking about trying to get people with a lazy disorder to work the job they're actually supposed to be working. But if you are a true slave driver with no care about them as individuals, the Word of God says do not rule over them ruthlessly. Extortion. Ever been hungry or thirsty at a theme park? Right? You've been at, uh, right? You're there, there at Six Flags and you're like, I want a drink of water. That'll be $40,000, sir. Okay, great. I want something to eat. A cheeseburger. That'll be $900,000. All right, great. Awesome. I feel I'm being taken of uh, advantage of just a little bit. And something that um, I want you to look at in verse 55, this is kind of the key here. God says, For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. That means that all bosses and all employees have one boss, and that is God. Notice the next phrase. They are my servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So literally, we should understand it as God is my boss. And if God is my boss, how would I act towards those that I'm working for or working with or who are actually working for me? If you want to turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 25 or just make a note, there in verse number 16, 15, God says, A full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have, and your days will be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things and all who act dishonestly, this is hardcore, are an abomination to the Lord your God. That means that crooked businessmen who have, what they would do back then is they would have a system of weights, like if you wanted to buy a certain amount of Wheaties, right? And you would weigh that out. If you were a crook, you would have a, a scale that would actually say three quarters of a pound when they think they are actually getting a full pound. And God's word says, check it out, that a crooked businessman, um, anybody in run, ring a bell? All right. Any, 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 any scams? All right. God says that it's an abomination. It literally means that it makes God sick. It means to be not take advantage of those 
who can't do anything for themselves. You say, okay, Jeff, I'm an employee. What does the Bible say about what I'm supposed to do with the job that I have that I can't stand in this recession? Number one, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, I would say, man, if you if you were an employee, bro, write this down on a card, put it into your smartphone, if you're smart enough to know how to operate a smartphone, all right? And, you know, get, get it down. Colossians 3, 23, awesome. It says, whatever you do, work heartily. It means with all your heart. Here, here, here's one. As for the Lord... And not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. That means when you have that, that boss that you, that you would rather not hang out with after work is over, when the boss asks you to do something, if you're an employee, if you're, if you're a believer and you're a follower of Christ, say, you know what, Lord, that's unreasonable what they're asking me to do. I don't enjoy doing this. They've asked me to do all these other things. But when you do it as if, now here's, it goes back to the question, is God in control? Christians, is God sovereign? If God is sovereign, he's in control, then why did he give us the jobs that we have for the time that we have them? So really, we could see it as God allowing that boss to be a jerk so that our character could be molded to be more Christ-like. And so that when the boss gives me that command, that order, I do that not in uh, like obedience to the boss per se, but that it's coming from the Lord because the Lord has allowed that boss to be there. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, another awesome one. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Ephesians chapter 5, uh, 6, verse 5 says, Slaves, which is our modern connotation of like a worker, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Nor by the way of eye service as people pleasers, meaning that you only work when the, when the, have you ever been there, right? The boss comes by and all of a sudden everybody's just hammering out work, you know, on the computer. Or I mean, they're, they're just, he passes by like, wow, I've got a productive group. And you got your, like your point man is looking around the corner. Okay, he's gone. You know, everybody just gets back on, you know, Facebook or, or whatever they're going to do, talking on the phone. And it says, not as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart. Now, hold on. This is even within a slave context. And he's telling the slaves, look, the way that you can glorify God and even maybe lead your master to Christ is if when they tell you to do something, you see it as the will of God because God has placed that boss there for you. Wow. Rendering service with a good will to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, for this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. So if you're a worker here, you say, man, Jeff, they don't deserve me doing a good job. What would you deserve if God gave you justice? You know what I would deserve? Once again, I would deserve judgment in hell. Okay, if you're a boss, you say, man, what do I do, Jeff? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9. Write it down. Own it. Masters, do the same to them and stop, th- and stop your threatening. Right? Like that boss, it's like, no, literally, I'm going to kill you. No, I'm, I'm, I'm going to kill you if you don't, you know. That doesn't go over very well today with lawsuits and such. But if you have a boss that is overbearing, if you are that, stop. Because the Bible says, knowing that he, God, who is both their master and yours, is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. James chapter 4, verse 12 says, There is one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. Malachi chapter 3, verse 5, God says, I will draw near to you for judgment. And one of the groups that is, comes under judgment is against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, meaning the foreigner who doesn't have any rights, and do not fear me. Saying, Jeff, what are we supposed to do about this? Well, here's, here's a few action points before we close. Number one is understand. You say, man, I'm an American, Jeff. How am I supposed to understand this recession and the world recession? If you've watched the news, you know the rest of the world, especially the third world, gets hammered. Like when our stock market goes down, when our investments are like... That means that there's people in the world that are absolutely devastated. Number one, understand the pervasiveness of poverty. 
Um, worldpoverty.org says this, extreme poverty has been a constant reality for most of the world's population in the past and even today. So what is extreme poverty in the Bible? Well, one example would be in Mark chapter 12, verses 41 through 44, with the widow, right? She had how many coins? Those little two little coins. All the rich people were dumping in huge chains like big coin, right? Big bling bling. And this lady had two small copper coins and she put them in and Jesus said she is given All that she has, she's given more than they have. So biblically, to be have poverty means that you literally have nothing. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 12, the widow at Zarephath. Elijah comes by, he says, "Uh, would you give me something to eat? And she says, I have nothing baked and only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son and we'll eat it and then we'll die. Hello! No helping hands there. There's nothing. She's like, we've got a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil, or if you're from Tennessee, Earl, and I, we're going to go in and I've, I'm going to get two sticks and we're going to make a little, you know, a little clam chowder thing that you put on your salad and we're going to eat it and then we're going to die. Okay. <laughs> Biblically... That's poor. Probably don't have any poor people here today. All right? See, Jeff, what is middle class-ish biblically defined? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8. Middle class is normally defined with being able to have something and have a little bit to the side. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 8, Paul says, But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. To be middle class biblically is to not have need of necessities. And what are necessities? We'll talk about that. Number three, what is rich biblically defined? Luke chapter 12, verses 17 and 18, right? We just heard the story about the rich dude, rich guy. He goes out, he plants, he gets all this produce, and he's like, man, I got a barn. That's the redneck version of the Greek is shed. Okay? Got a shed here, right? Shed is to put stuff in that you don't have either room for or your wife is like honey I don't I know you're I know you're proud of the John Deere but it doesn't need to go in the living room right it's that type of stuff okay what he did he's like bro I've got a big barn but my barn my shed is full I'll build a bigger one that's rich let me give you a couple of sobering statistics the percent if you make above $10,000 a year, you are wealthier than 84% of the world. If you make $50,000 a year, you are wealthier than 99% of the people on the planet. The average income for 35.3% of the world, and this comes from the World Bank, we'll have this PDF uploaded this week so you can access all of it. 30, 35.3% of the world's population, their annual income is $1,808. 40 40.9% of the world's population has an average in, annual income of $388. That's normal. Secondly, understand the economic normality for the majority of the world. What is normal economy for most people on the planet? It is incessant recessions, tidal waves of recessions that come and fluctuate. Uh, Three examples that I have there in your outline. Number one would be Peru. In 1990, for Peru, there was a 7,500% increase in inflation. That means that if you had a Peruvian currency, it would be devalued that much. It's like having a dollar, and at the end of the year, your dollar is worth over 7,000% less. Bolivia, in 1985, over 10,000% inflation. Zimbabwe, just in 2008, the highest rate of hyperinflation ever recorded... 231 million percent. That means if you're printing currency, you're losing money. 
1922, Germany had 5,000% inflation. 1989, Argentina had 3,100% inflation. 1993, for Brazil, 2,100% inflation. 1993, Ukraine, 5,000% inflation. What this means, you say, man, Jeff, how does this happen? It happens when the government makes a lot of loans and they try to cover, they get in debt, they try to cover their debts by printing more money. So that means that if you build up a pot of $50,000 by the time you're 50, that means that it will be devalued however much the percent increased in inflation. It literally means that everything you've ever worked for in your life within the time of a year is worth not even the paper that it's printed on. That's normal economics for the third world. So you not only have government-induced inflation, but you have something... um, Those of you who've been around the block a little while, anybody remember stagflation back in the day? Back in in mid-70s to about 80? All right, stagflation is where you have an economy in a recession like ours and your government printing presses are going through the roof. They're just printing money like it's going out of style. So what happens that way is there's not even work to get the money that's not worth anything. So you lose both ways. And the way that the U.S. came out of that in the early 80s is the only thing you can do is tighten your money supply. Tell your printing presses, bro, no more printing the money. Well, what happens when you have less money printed? The economy goes into a nosedive, and it did from 1981 till about 1983. Absolute nosedive. And then after a while, it can pick up, depending. Number three, government corruption and oppressive bureaucracy. There are places in the world that you can't... Please, please hear this. Back, when I went over the seas for the first time in 2002, I was like, it was a very poor country. I was like, get a job, right? Like, we're Americans, right? Isn't that the thing? Like, if somebody, you know, like, get a job. Some of you are looking like at me like you've never said that before, all right? That, that's usually American, like, you know, open up the, the classifieds, get a job, work a job, work 5,000 hours a week. But there are places in the world, and I now understand a small part of this, that you could be honest, you can get your education, you can be hardworking, you can be diligent, but it doesn't matter. Because you're either going to have to pay protection. There was one mission trip I went to, and I found out halfway through the week, Oh, okay. The hotel we're staying at has to pay protection money to the local mafia. Great. So you're there, you're trying to make money, run a good hotel, but you're having to pay an off-the-books tax to the thugs. And then the government, so many governments around the world, especially the third world, I have friends in Brazil, the government knows how much you, like, the government has little eyes in your individual bank account. So if you do get some money from a side job and you deposit it, they will come and scoop off that 60% income tax on the top. You can't make it. And even if you try to put back money, even if you work so diligently and so smart and long, you have that late rate of hyperinflation that will steal up what you have saved. You have property rights here in America. We have property. So many places around the world, they don't know who owns what piece of land. We also have something called the rule of law in America. For example, if you put your money in a bank, and you've got a crooked banker, and he just, you know, with his secretary, just decides to, to withdraw your money and skip town, you're going to get your money back. Somebody tell me, was F? Yeah. Up to what is it now? 250000 or more? The government will guarantee that? That's not even talking about your bank. Let me talk about the local lawyer. Go get yourself an angry lawyer, right? An angry lawyer, you know, he'll go out, he'll, he'll find them, right? He'll drag them to court. He'll get you your money back. So you and I, we don't even think about it. We get our paycheck and we go and we cash it. Um, sometimes we put it in, you know, savings or checking for a while. And we don't even think about when we need to swipe our card or write a check that it's still going to be there. The third world, you don't do that because it won't be there. And if it is there, it'll probably get double taxed and taxed again and taxed again and taxed again. And then once again, hyperinflation will steal everything that you have um, saved. Three, understand, we as Christians understand in the world economy that most everything that we have known as normal simply is not normal for the vast majority of the world. The rule of law. Property rights. 
the ability to have a somewhat stable currency. The, the printing presses right now are going uh, very fast. Um, we know that the U.S. dollar has not done that great, but it's still something like you can bring it home and like, I think I can buy bread. Maybe an ounce of gas, right? You know, but I can still provide for, for, my, for my family. So you say, Jeff, what is God doing in the recession? Five basic points and then we're through. Number one, he's waking us up to the physical needs of the third world. More than a billion people in the world live on less than $1 a day. Almost half, over 3 billion people in the world, this is according to globalissues.org, live on less than $2.50 a day. I have a friend who's from a third world country. We were talking about dogs one time. He's like, yeah, I've, I, and we, we took, I, I can't remember how it came up. It was like... It was like Chinese restaurants or something. We talked about eating dogs and, you know, it just came up. And then he's like, yeah, I've eaten a dog. We're like, oh, yeah, what? We're like, oh, he ate a dog. And he's like, no, seriously, I, I, we, we, I've, me and my friend, we ate a dog. And we're like, bro, why, why did you eat, why did you eat, why did you eat Fido? What would you do that for? And I felt like an idiot because he says it was, it was a super tough time. He says that was the only, that was the only thing we could find. And so they, they found this, this dog and, and they ate the dog. That's normal. Okay? To us, that's not normal. Unless you're from way out in Endicott somewhere, alright? For us, that's, that's not normal. But for most of the world, it is. I remember going to the former Soviet Union, meeting a beautiful lady in her 50s. She had a teenage daughter who had Down syndrome. And she lived in one of the 70s styles Khrushchev buildings. Those of you who remember back when Khrushchev spoke at the UN and he, he took out his shoe and he beat it on the podium as to, you know, show distaste for the United States of America. And, and he built these big concrete blocks that was like a big rat cage and he just shoved people in there. Many cases, in this case, there wasn't even uh, run, sewage in there. And she was, brought us into her home. It was basically through a translator. Look, this is all that I have. This, this, this sweet uh, Down syndrome, very precious teenage girl, and this lady who had been raised in the Soviet Union, speaking Russian, um, loved the Lord Jesus Christ. She had been saved, but she had nothing. So when we experience a cut in our pay, we experience financial shaking, it should wake us up to what is day in and day out reality for the vast majority of the world. Number two, it's waking us up to our own spiritual needs. The fact that some of us um, are like Matthew twenty four twelve, to where Jesus says, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Some of us, it is the case that when the economy hit the fan, that's the first time that we really started praying to the Lord. Y'all all right? I mean, our prayer life got real intense. Hypocrites, you there with me? Okay. Oh, man, we showed up to prayer meeting. All of a sudden, we hit our knees and say, Lord, you've got to help my retirement because that Corvette, mm! But for the majority of the world, that's not the case. Waking us up to our own spiritual needs. John Piper says uh, this story found in 1998 edition of Reader's Digest. He, he, he reads about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. That's doing good, isn't it? 59, 51, retirings and see you later. And now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler and play softball and collect shells. Y'all excited yet? At first, when I read it, this is John Piper, I'm quoting, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life and you're one, your only precious God-given life and let the past great work of your life before you give an account to your Creator be this. Playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells? And he says, that is a tragedy. And I believe, I'm being honest, I think it is the mercy of God that He either brought or allowed this recession to come to wake us up to our materialism. Number three, causing us to repent of materialism. Isn't it funny that when some things get taken away, it shows you how least important they really are in your life? 
Psalm 103, uh, 10, verse 3 says, For the wicked boast of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. There's a pagan philosopher way back in the day before Jesus. His name was Epicurus, and he even said this, If a little is not enough for you, nothing is. Even the pagans got that! But today we want more and more and more and more and more. Jupiter Media, this is from Dave Ramsey, said that there are 15.4 billion credit advertising impressions on the American public every three months. We're hit with this stuff all the time, and it says if you have this stuff, then you'll be happy. But what we have to do is to be waking up. Number four, delivering us from sacrificing our families for possessions. You know, for some of us, it caused us to sit back and say, why am I working all this extra time and not spending time with my family? Number five, focusing on the eternal versus the temporary, spreading the gospel versus supplying ourselves with luxuries. It's to change our investment strategy. John Wesley, it's, this story is told about him, and he, he made what, was, what would be compared to, he was like one of the richest preachers ever. He made like $160,000 a year. Wouldn't that be doing pretty good as a pastor? But you know what he did? He limited himself to only live on about twenty. There's a story of he was in his, his small house and he had bought um, a, a picture to put on the wall and the maid came through and it was a very, very cold time and all she had was this, this very, very light, um, light coat and she was freezing. And he, he, kind of, he kind of stepped back and he says, it is with the blood of this maid that I bought this picture. Now question, was it wrong for him to buy the picture? No. You can decorate your house for the glory of God. But if we never think about the third world, if we never think about foreign missions, and it's all about making ourselves happy through possessions, then it is not glorifying and honoring to God. And it is His mercy that brings us to the place of when the recession hits is to bring us back to the question, and that is the question that is in your outline, where is our security? What is the source of our security? And if it is in money, our life will be radically rocked. We will lose faith in the Lord and in life. But if our faith is in the Lord, saying, God, at the end of the day, like Job, he said, naked I came into this world with nothing, and I'll leave with nothing. Remember the the, the great bumper sticker theology that we've all heard? You can't take it what? Never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse. That's the point I believe the Lord is teaching us through the recession to give to what truly matters, to give to the gospel, and to live our lives for the glory of God. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes as we come to this time of invitation. If you're here and you have never been saved, just this time, just give your heart to the Lord. It's not a specific prayer you pray. Just, Just trust Him with everything that you are. Repent of your sin. Ask Him to be your Savior and Lord. And he says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if you've done that, when we begin to sing, I'm going to ask you to get up out of your seat and walk down. And just by doing that, you're not saving yourself. That doesn't save you. The walk doesn't save you. But you're just saying, look, man, I'm ready to stand up for Jesus. I'm ready to let this group know who I stand with and who I stand for. And if you're here and you know that the Lord is bringing you to join this church and to team up with us to reach Franklin County with the gospel, you come. If you've never been baptized, but you need to be baptized, you come. We'll baptize you. Not now. We'll set up a date. If you're here and you've been saved, but you say, Jeff, I've never joined this church. I'm, I've never been, I've been saved, but I've never been baptized. We ask you to come and just obey the Lord. Father, we'd ask that you would take this time and honor yourself with it. In Jesus' name, amen.